know, happy Mother's Day. Um, I'm very humbled to be here. I, I was, um, I'm always humbled when I get up here. I know a couple years ago when I first started doing this, one of the things I thought I would never be standing up front, it's, it's not something that is easy for me to do. Um, but um, I do feel that it's, it's my way of listening to God and obeying him, so thank you for inviting me. Um, today we celebrate all women in our lives um, who nurture us, who love us unconditionally, who instilled their faith and values in us, and uh, who prepared us for our God-given purpose. Nurturing is defined as extending care, education, training, and helping to grow and develop someone physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You know, these women may be your mom, but it could also be your neighbor, a teacher, a friend. It could also be your grandmother, your pastor, a sister or daughter-in-law. Daughter it could also, um, it could just be someone from your work. We have to be very open to, to seeing those women in our lives. You know, we journey through our lives sometimes without a clue of what is going on and what we're doing. But if we're paying attention, we see that God surrounds us with people who nurture us, who we need to hear from. You know, as I was beginning my research process for this message, because it is quite a process, I get, I get, get very involved in my mind, which that's not always good, but um, I was keeping in mind... <laughs> I know. Um, I was keeping in mind that I, I knew that it would be I would be sharing today on Mother's Day. So I started thinking about the women in my life who had brought me to this very point in time. My mother Joan and my, my grandmas, uh, Ethel and Margie, my sister Hansi, my Aunt Martha, my daughters-in-law, Carrie and Hillary. Um, I think about my sister-in-law, Diane, and just all these women. Many of you here today have made a, a big impact on my life since we started coming here. You know, and then I thought, uh, I started thinking about my mother-in-law, Margaret. And as I was thinking about her, I started thinking about a paper that I had written for an English class when I was working on my associate degree like 30-some years ago. Um, and it was, it was titled, Ruth, an Example for All Generations. I wrote about Margaret's in my relationship because she had loved and cared for and nurtured the love of my life and someone that I respect, and that's my husband, Doug. Um, well, I found the paper, and as I read it, I realized how our roles change and how our journey changes us as we grow in experience and maturity. You know, I think about how I looked at the story of Ruth through her eyes as a young woman when I wrote the paper, and now how I see the story more through Naomi's eyes. You know, Ruth is a story of loss, but it's also a story of lo loyalty and of obedience. And although there are no miracles recorded in this book, it is a story overflowing with God's redeeming grace. And it's one of the loveliest pictures of God's redeeming grace. You know, so let me share a quick overview of the book of Ruth that is found in the Bible in the Old Testament, and it's right before the first book of Samuel. Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons Malon and Kilion had left Bethlehem during a severe famine and went to live in the land of Moab. Elimelech died and their sons married women from Moab, Ruth and Orpah. And after about 10 years, the two sons died, leaving Naomi and two daughters-in-law as widows and leaving no children. Having heard that the famine was over in Judah, Naomi decided to return to Bethlehem. She urges Ruth and Orpah to remain in Moab and find husbands from among their own people. Well, Orpah obeys um, Naomi, and Ruth stays with Naomi. Naomi's example of faith in God during their stay in the pagan land of Moab had a major impact on Ruth, and she chooses to stay with Naomi and commit herself to God. 
The two women arrived in Bethlehem just in time for the early spring harvest. Ruth immediately begins working the fields to support herself and Naomi. Well, while working in the fields, Boaz, who is a wealthy landowner and is related to Naomi's um, dead husband, Elimelech, notices the hardworking Ruth. Their relationship develops, develops further, and God uses Boaz to bless Ruth and Naomi as their kinsman redeemer. Um, Boaz marries Ruth, and they have a son, Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of the most famous and loved ruler of Israel, King David. And as we read in Matthew and Luke, Jesus is born in fulfillment of God's promises to Adam, Abraham, and to King David. As so many um, of the stories in the Bible, this story reminds me that God works in the ordinary events of everyday life, in the lives of ordinary people, and that his presence becomes evident as we open ourselves to his leading and to his word. The Bible is full of lessons if we listen to God, and the book of Ruth is no exception. And you know, I say that because I have to be careful not to let my preconceptions override what God is telling me when I read his word. Um, so with that, I'd like to share six lessons that I gleaned, uh, I gleaned uh, recently from the book of Ruth. And the first lesson I took was to be obedient. As I said, preconceptions can get in our way. When I read the, read the story years ago for my paper, I thought that Orpah was being selfish as she returned to her parents' home. But now I wonder, was she? Can we sometimes identify with Orpah? You know, we always want to judge her, not to tell her story of love and obedience. Remember, it was a time when women obeyed their authority figures. The first chapter in Ruth is an emotional roller coaster. I can now see Orpah being obedient to her mother-in-law's request. Orpah didn't make the choice lightly. I believe Orpah loved Naomi just as much as Ruth did. And the three, the three women had actually started the journey back to Bethlehem together. Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth twice to go back to their mother's home. The first time, they all break down in tears as Naomi kisses them goodbye, and both daughters-in-law tell her no and that they want to go with her. The second time, Naomi insists that they return, and in chapter 1, verse 14, it says that they wept together again as Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. These women had suffered devastating losses. No children, no husbands, and that meant no economic support. What an emotional time for all of them. And I know when I weep, it's because of something very sensitive to me. I don't believe it was an easy decision for Orpah to make. And I wonder how Orpah lived out the rest of her life, which leads me to the second lesson, be an example. Did Orpah continue living her life as a faithful follower of God, setting an example for her family, just as Naomi did for her? Naomi was Orpah's example for at least 10 years. Orpah watched Naomi as she prayed and worshiped God, as she trusted him. We don't know, but one thing that I've learned from our pastor, Peggy, in her love for outreach and her heart for bringing people to know Christ is that someone might attend Baseline only once, maybe through a worship service or a special event, maybe even a funeral or a wedding. But through that one touch, a seed is planted, and God can take that moment and stretch it into a lifetime and eternity with him. I can't help but hope that the example that Naomi set for Orpah over the 10 years that they were together helped Orpah have a personal relationship with God, and that when she returned to her parents' home that she shared her love, the promises of God she learned from Naomi, her trust, her faith, her commitment to God with them and her friends. 
You know, God is always working providentially in our lives for his glory. It, it remember in Colossians 1.16, it says everything was created through him and for him. And it was no different for this family. He used Naomi's faith and love to his glory. And the third lesson comes as Ruth states the most famous words in this, in this book from chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And this is our, our focus verse today, our memory verse, and um, I'd like to read it uh, together. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And that third lesson is be full of faith. You know, Ruth uses the name Yahweh here, which is the personal name of God, the God of Israel. Um, she could have used Elohim, uh, which can be used as a general term for God with a small g, or she could have used Chemosh, the name of the God of the Moabites, but she chose Yahweh. She was fully committed to her choice to move away from all that she knew, her parents, her home, possible remarriage, all to seek God. Her use of the name Yahweh was her statement of faith and how she had embraced God's plan for her. I believe that her commitment to follow God's plan for her gave Ruth much more in return for her faithfulness. She had a wonderful relationship with her mother-in-law. She married Boaz, a respected man, and was blessed with the birth of a long-awaited child. Which brings us to the next lesson, God provides beyond our expectations. You know, we all go through trials and times of hardship on our earthly journey. Even Naomi tells her friends upon her arrival in Bethlehem to call her Mara. In Ruth 1.20, it says, For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. And that's our humanness, feeling sorry for ourselves when we experience a crisis in our lives or in our faith. However, for Naomi, even though she felt the bitterness and the loss of her husband and sons, she uses the word Almighty to describe God. And here, Almighty translates to the Hebrew Shaddai, which pictures God's strength and provision. Naomi is still asserting that Almighty God can do everything he has promised. Although Naomi was suffering, she knew that God would provide exactly what she needed. His provision in her life was a perfect plan for her life, which included Ruth, her friends, Boaz, and in the end, a grandchild to love. And you know, that's part of the good news. Uh, God gives us the privilege of coming to him in prayer anytime, anywhere, and about anything, just like Naomi. He promises that his word will guide us and that his Holy Spirit will enable us. You know, Paul reminds us in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that God is faithful and that he will not allow any temptation or trial to test us beyond our ability to bear it and that he will provide a way out so that we can endure it. You know, I picture Naomi lifting her arms up to God, even in her darkness, praying continuously, or I picture her on her knees with her forehead pressed against the floor, worshiping him, finding comfort in him because he is her Yahweh. He is her El Shaddai. And in return, God gives her far more than she can imagine. I picture that as Naomi comes out of her depression, she recognizes God's good judgment and management of his plan for her life in providing for her and Ruth a kinsman redeemer. Again, there's that word, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later. 
In Ruth 2.20, Naomi affirms that the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And in Ruth 3, we see Naomi's concern is for Ruth's future, that she would gain a husband and provider. And as I said previously, in the end, Naomi's bitterness is turned to joy. She's no longer Mara the bitter, but Naomi the pleasant. She has a daughter and a friend who cherishes her. She gains a son-in-law who would provide for her and Ruth. And she is a grandmother to Ruth's son, Obed. You know, Naomi left a godly legacy for her family and for her future generations, which leads us to the fifth lesson, leave a legacy. I mentioned earlier that um, a nurturer not only helps to develop us physically and emotionally, but also spiritually. Naomi was rebuilding her family. She was choosing to continue to trust God to lead and then living that life by applying, embracing, and proclaiming God's faithfulness. Think about what Naomi's example might have looked like to Ruth, and then let's look at Psalm 22. This was written by David, um, and I have heard that it's called the Messianic Psalm because David talks about the coming Christ and foretells what will happen at Calvary as, as Jesus hung on the cross. Even at that time, Jesus called out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Just as David wrote in verse 1 of the psalm. And as we read through Psalm 22, we can hear a man that is struggling hard uh, with hard issues in his life, but continues to trust God. You hear David's despairing cry in verses 1 and 2, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call for you, my God, but you do not answer. And every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. But you know, yet in verses 3 and 4, he honors God by saying, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you, and you rescued them. He shifts from despair and hopelessness to an attitude of praise and worship. And why? Because his mother taught him about God. She taught him that God was powerful and worthy of praise in every circumstance. Although David's mother is not named in the Bible, according to the Talmud, which is not the Bible, but it does consist of Jewish uh, commentary on their history, their laws, their customs, and their culture, Nitzavet um, is an Israelite woman. Uh, she was mother of King David. Well, growing up until David was about 28 years old, he had an extremely hard life. His childhood was filled with loneliness and rejection, he was ridiculed by his brothers as well as his community, and he was blamed when something went wrong. I even read um, that uh, the fact that the reason he was sent to shepherd his family, uh, his family sheep, uh, was that they were hoping he would be killed by a lion or a bear or a wolf. Uh, but it was Nitzavet, his mother, that stood by him, taught him to respect himself, and most importantly, taught him that he was a worthy child of God. You know, in verses 9 and 10, I hear a man that even in adversity remembers his faith that his mother instilled in him. You, uh, yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust, uh, trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth, and you've been my God from the moment I was born. And at the end of Psalm, uh, at the Psalm in verses 30 and 31, David says, Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything he has done. Boy, that brought a lot of questions to me. I was thinking, was David thinking about what his mother had taught, taught him? 
And I thought, absolutely. Was he thinking about what he would tell his children? I think definitely after reaching, reading verses 30 and 31. And then I thought, I wonder how many prayers Naomi sent up for her family and future generations. And then I thought about how do I pray for my family and for my future generations? And what legacy are you leaving your family? Well, I have one more lesson that I want to touch on, and that is God sent a Redeemer in Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sin. Upon arriving in Bethlehem, Naomi sends Ruth to glean in the fields of Boaz, and if you remember, he's the wealthy relative of Naomi, to whom they later ask to be their kinsman Redeemer. Finally, what is a kinsman Redeemer? Uh, well, according to various laws of the Pentateuch, and I've put a definition of the Pentateuch in, on the back of your insert in your bulletin. Uh, Pentateuch is Greek for five books and designates the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jewish tradition calls these books Torah, which means direction, teaching, instruction, or doctrine. So anyways, according to the Pentateuch, the kinsman redeemer in Jewish history is a male relative who had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble or in danger or was in need of vindication. Goel is the Hebrew term for kinsman redeemer and designates one who delivers or rescues or redeems property or a person. And if you want to read more about this, uh, just go ahead and write down Genesis 48, 16, Exodus 6, 6, Leviticus 25, 47 through 55, uh, Leviticus uh, 25, 47 through 55, and then Leviticus 27, 9 through 25. Now here the story of Ruth gets a little odd. Uh, in Ruth 3, Naomi tells Ruth to go bathe and put on some perfume and her best clothes, and then go to the threshing floor and wait until Boaz is asleep, and then go lay down at his feet. Uh, Ruth does this and tells Boaz that she is his servant and asks him to spread the corner of his covering over her because he is her family redeemer. Now that is a peculiar way to propose to someone. <laughs> but Boaz willingly takes Ruth as his wife. And we see how Boaz is a symbol of our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Through Boaz's redemption, he returns Naomi to her inheritance and takes Ruth, a Gentile, as his bride. This is a parallel with the church as the bride of Christ. Rather than allowing Ruth to confront her first kinsman, Boaz stands in her place and took on the entire burden of proof for her. God provided Ruth and Naomi a redeemer in Boaz, just as he did for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus paid, for our, uh, paid a price for our redemption on the cross. However, the price that Jesus paid was not like the price Boaz paid. Boaz paid out of his material affluence. Christ paid with his own life and his blood. So as I close, I'd like you to think about a couple of things. First, at the beginning of the book of Ruth, Naomi felt abandoned by God. And we all have those moments when we feel like this. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us. It just means we're human. Like Naomi, as she continued on her journey and returned to Bethlehem, we must always be prepared to move forward in faith. The closer we walk with God, the more evident, evident his presence is. 
It means if we draw close to him during the good times, we'll know where to find him in our dark times. We have to work at being obedient and seeking his guidance in our life decisions. And we can strengthen that relationship with God through prayer and reading his word regularly. Uh, second, as you celebrate this day, remember that being a woman, being a nurturer isn't always easy. Take a moment today to thank the women in your life, to honor them and to thank God for them. Remember to pray for the women in your life who have walked faithfully with you on your journey. In fact, don't just pray, with, pray for, for them by yourself. Grab their hand and pray with them. Um, pray for relationships to be mended and restored. Pray for lives to be lived as Christ calls rather than being conformed to the world. Pray for family and friends that they would know how much they're loved. Pray for insight that will enable them to discern what is best for their life. Pray for strength. Pray for their specific needs. Pray that they will experience the abundant joy that comes from their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? As we bow our heads, I, I want you to kind of think about the women in your, in your lives. You know, maybe they're sitting right next to you. You could grab their hand and hold on to it while we pray together. Almighty and gracious God, thank you for the women in our lives. Thank you for their tender hearts and loving spirits. Give them a desire to seek you and draw near to you and to move forward in faith in every circumstance. Help them with their struggles, surround them with encouragers, and give them your wisdom and discernment. And most of all, give them every resource they need to leave a godly legacy for their family, for their friends, and for their future generations. Bless them, Heavenly Father, and fill them with your peace that passes all understanding. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Amen.